Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our series in the book of Acts, and here the men will be discussing Acts chapter 20, which has Paul in Macedonia and Greece, Eutychus being raised from the dead, and Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation over these texts. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John discussing Acts chapter 20. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is helping us get this recorded. Uh, We are in the middle of a study of uh, the book of Acts. And today we are covering Acts chapter 20. Uh, Acts chapter 20 is uh, the final stage of Paul's missionary journey among the Gentiles before he heads to Jerusalem. He's already determined to go to Jerusalem. He said that in the previous chapter when he was in Ephesus, he purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And chapter 20 is um, part of the travelogue as Paul moves on from uh, Asia Minor and makes his way toward Jerusalem. And it's a a kind of farewell tour. Paul's visiting the churches that he had ministered to. Uh, he's visiting leaders that had been appointed in uh, in the churches where he had that he had planted. So there's a, a a couple of things I think that are overlapping as as large large scale themes that are running through here. We mentioned last time that Paul is following the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus made a long journey to Jerusalem uh, be, uh, on his way to his arrest trial, death, and resurrection, Paul's making his way to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to face arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem, but expecting to go on from Jerusalem. On the way, he visits uh, Troas, and in Troas, he meets with the disciples, and he breaks bread with them uh, at night before he leaves them for the last time, Uh, again, following the model of Jesus. He gives us a lengthy speech to the elders at Ephesus, the third of Paul's uh, primary speeches in this, in, uh, prior to his arrest. He makes a, a number of defense speeches in defense after his arrest. But through his missionary journeys, he's made uh, uh, delivered a sermon to the Jews in chapter 13. He's delivered a sermon to the philosophers at the Areopagus in chapter 17. And here he gives a final farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, uh, which among other things I think is, resembles the upper room discourse. It's not taking place in an upper room, but it's a kind of farewell speech, warning them about what they're going to face, telling them he's going to depart and they won't see him again, telling them that they're going to have to follow his example. It's, it's, it resembles the, that section of John's gospel where Jesus is given his, giving his upper room discourse in his farewell address to his disciples. One other thing that I'll note and then open things up, but uh, there are a couple of references here to the Jewish calendar, verse 6 of chapter twenty. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, came to Troas within five days. So it's, uh, it's marked by uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Uh, and then Paul is hastening to go on to Jerusalem because he wants to get there by the day of Pentecost, verse 16 says. Uh, Luke is writing this as uh, following, that, uh, following that Jewish calendar, and he moves from a, a Passover kind of setting with unleavened bread, Paul breaking bread, a death and resurrection of Eutychus in Troas, and then he's moving on to get to Pentecost by 
I get to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So there's so there's a uh, which which should uh, that's the feast that would correspond to the to Israel's arrival at Sinai. So you you have that Jewish calendar framing this section of Acts as well. That uh, Paul is not just living through the life of Jesus and following the footsteps of Jesus, but he's also in some way replicating, recapitulating the history of Israel as he moves from unleavened bread to Pentecost. Other chronological notes. I don't think we mentioned last time that back in 1922, when he sends Timothy and Erastus, they're probably almost surely headed to Corinth with Paul's first letter, what we call the first Corinthians. And that's, at least that's traditionally been the way that's understood. And then also in this chapter, uh, in verse two, when he's in uh, Macedonia, or uh, excuse me, when he's um, departed from Macedonia, he's in Greece, uh, this is probably when he wrote Second Corinthians also. And then spending some months there, that's at least traditionally when he writes Romans. So there's a lot of writing going on here in the months that he's preparing to go to set sail for Jerusalem. That, I think, can help us to understand that Paul's letters are not just abstract theological treatises. They are actions um, that he takes to steady a cor- the course of a particular church or to correct its um, movement within critical moments within time. And it's part of this wider mission. And as we read the epistles of Paul alongside the book of Acts, I think it gives us a clearer sense of um, Paul's ministry, not just as one of abstract thought, but as one of thinking about what the gospel means in situations, into particular occasions and um, junctures in time, which must be addressed in a very careful manner. Um, Paul is primarily an actor, not just a thinker. Mm-hmm. This is a, one of those chapters that has complicated itineraries uh, in the opening verses. He moves uh, from Macedonia, Greece, sailed from Philippi, verse 6, came to Troas, and he stays in Troas. Uh, and then uh, there's an, uh, several more indications of his travels in verses 13 through 16 that eventually bring him to Miletus, where he calls for the Ephesian elders, and he, and he meets them at Miletus. And it occurred to me before, I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast, that uh, this feels like a, it feels similar to the travel log that we have for uh, Abraham. As Abraham enters into the land, he goes to one place, sets up an altar, moves on to another place, sets up an altar, goes down to the Negev, goes down into Egypt, comes back out, sets up another altar. So he's moving from place to place, and that's not just um, tracking Abraham's movements, but that's a kind of, it's kind of a walkthrough of Abraham's eventual inheritance. He's, he's scoping out the property that's going to belong to his descendants. And I think we have a similar kind of thing here. It's the, the phrase that's used at the beginning of Joshua, uh, where uh, the Lord tells Joshua, wherever the sole of his feet, the sole of his foot walks, that will belong to him. That's the land that's going to belong to him. Uh, and Paul is kind of making a walk through around Asia and around, he's going back to Jerusalem and he's been in Asia, he's been in Greece, he's been in Macedonia uh, and, and sailing also. So there's a, there's a walk through and a, and a sail through that seems to be a kind of claim, staking claim on this territory that's going to be, that is Jesus' inheritance and it's going to be the inheritance of the saints. 
there's also an important, an important shift in verse 5. Um, it shifts from talking about what he did to we. Um, yeah. It seems that Luke joins at this particular point. Yeah, and Luke, along with a number of others, he, um, there are seven companions listed in verse 4. Paul's had companions before, but I, I believe that this is the largest company that he's gathered for any of his travels. Then we have the <laughs> the story of Eutychus here, sandwiched between the travel narrative. Okay, and why is that put here? I don't know. If, I don't know if I can give an answer to that. Why is that here? What's why was this narrated? Other than it's significant. I mean, sure, there are lots of things that happened uh, to Paul when he was preaching at these various places, but we don't always get you know, lived body detail like we get here with Eutychus. Is Paul being portrayed here as, you know, a new Old Testament prophet like Elijah or Elisha, who also raised from the dead? Or we remember back in, oh, was it Acts 8 or 9, where Peter also raised, was it Dorcas from the dead? Is that right? Dorcas or Tabitha, yes. Yeah, yeah. and... um so this is the last miracle I think that Paul will be, if indeed it is a miracle, it probably is, that Paul will be said to, to do here uh, in the book of Acts uh, until, well, I think, that's, I think it is the last one. So what's, why this story? What's, what's going on here? Well, you mentioned the connection between Elijah and Elisha. And it's interesting to note that in the story of the raising of the son of the widow of Zarephath, and then in the son of the Shunammite woman in Second Kings 4, and then in the case of the raising of Dorcas in chapter 9, and then here, in each one of them, an upper room is mentioned. Um, mm. So the two um, sons raised by Elijah and Elisha are placed in a, an upper room, as is Dorcas. And here he falls from an upper room, which maybe reminds us of um, is it Ahaziah at the beginning of the, the book of Second, Second Kings. Kings. He falls through the lattice of his upper room and is on a sickbed. Mm. Um, so it, there might be something of significance there to be unpacked. I'm not quite grasping it, though. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd, I, I, one thing that I've considered is the um, placement of chapter 20 between uh, the two accounts of the riots, one in Ephesus in chapter 19, another one's going to be provoked once he gets to Jerusalem. So you have um, a Gentile city that's thrown into confusion by the preaching of the gospel. You've got a, the center of Judaism that's thrown into confusion by the preaching of the gospel. And between those two, you have a couple of scenes of the life of the church, one of them involving a teaching and meal, a, a gathering on the first day of the week to break bread. So they're coming together in order to share a meal, but with teaching included, that involves resurrection. Uh, and then this lengthy pastoral speech from Paul. So uh, I think that that's part of the part of the logic of the placement that this uh, this stands as a contrast. It's a contrast community to both the uh, the, uh, the operation of Ephesus and, and Jerusalem. The other thing, I, again, my, my comments at the beginning about the calendar, I, I think that uh, we have a kind of Passover event here in Troas. Uh, this is 
he's coming after the days of unleavened bread. So it's after Passover, but we're, we're given that Passover context by the reference to unleavened bread in verse 6. And then there's a meal taking place in the upper room. Uh, something happens at midnight. He's, he's uh, preaching late into the night. And so in the middle of the night, uh, he, he falls out of the window is taken up and raised. He's, a, he's described as a boy, a young man in verse 9. Um, so there's a kind of death, and, there is a death and resurrection of Eutychus, uh, and uh, then a breaking of bread, and uh, they continue till daybreak. So I think there, there's a, uh, a Passover motif that's running through that story as well. Yeah, uh, the midnight is in verse 7. There's a there's this explicit reference to midnight, which is the time when the angel of death went through uh, went through Egypt. Uh, I wonder uh, the other another layer of this. Uh, I'll just raise this as a question. Uh, we're told in verse eight that there are many lamps in the upper room where they're gathered together. Why we why are we told that? Because it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> Your imagination astonishes. <laughs> <laughs> many lamps in an upper room third story um might make us think of the lights in the heavens but then also it presumably affects the air quality which is a, a more immediate explanation <laughs> yeah that's that's the common explanation is the air quality is bad and that's why <laughs> yeah it is the smoke. I, know, I know yeah <laughs> But he's the one sitting in the window. He should be getting the fresh air. That's true. That's right. Um, Maybe everyone else has fallen asleep, but they've not fallen out. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get, before we move on to the lamps, um, how do you take this? um, How long does Paul talk? Um, (laughs) First day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. It doesn't say at what time they started. He prolongs his message until midnight. Are we to understand this as an evening gathering um, that that goes on till midnight? Or has Paul talked the entire day no. and through the entire evening? No. I, I, almost surely what's happening here is that this is when the church has to meet on the first day of the week. They don't have Sundays off of work. So you have uh, them meeting early in the morning going to work and then late at night. That's, that's pretty universal in the pre-Constantinian church situation here. You, so this is, when, this is when they had to meet for their, their worship service. So I'm guessing it just goes on a long time. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as interesting, given what you said about the Passover, Peter, that um, it's not until after, after midnight that the bread is broken and I, I take that in verse 11 to be um, something more than just eating, something with like liturgical significance, mm-hmm. given that it's got the article there, it's, uh, you know, class ton arton. So it, it, it's sort of the breaking the, the bread, I, mm-hmm. I guess, sort of, which is reminiscent of the prayers and, you know, the doctrine and other kind of liturgical um, terms. And, that then seems quite interesting in light of the Passover, given that the bread is is um, uh, eaten sort of uh, midway through the night, and that sort of uh, liturgical aspect of it then sort of is is quite synchronised. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, going back to my question about the lamps, um, 
Lamps I was trying to distract you from it. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Uh, I think Al- Alistair suggested that you have an, a, uh, an, eleva- an elevated set of lamps is interesting. You have a kind of cosmic picture here. The, my first thought had to do with the, with the temple structure, uh, which doesn't have uh, upper stories, but does have um, kind of symbolic upper stories. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of ascent as you go from, from the courtyard into the, into the uh, holy place, and then you move upwards into the holy place, and then upwards into the, into the inner sanctuary. It occurred to me there's a kind of temple theme here, but uh, beyond that, it didn't. Uh, nothing. Nothing had clicked. And going back to Pentecost, you have the lighting of the lamps there, with the um, lights coming upon the heads of the disciples, mm-hmm. and fitting in with the theme that you see in Revelation, with the church as a lampstand. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you guys are missing the most obvious fact that this is the first recorded incident. In, in the history of the Christian church in which a young person is literally bored to death by preaching. <laughs> there's been, of course, there's been a lot about that. I came across um, a, a book by John, or a sermon, I think, by Jonathan Swift, you know, the Anglican priest, Culver's uh, uh, Travels. And he's got a sermon on this, and it's titled On Sleeping in Church. And <laughs> What he does is ignores all the details of the text and just chooses to address the, all the complaints from his congregation about his boring sermons. He ends up blaming Eutychus for not listening and for falling off. Oh, I see. Links them oh. with his grumbling congregation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So is is the takeaway message that it's okay to be a boring preacher as long as you can raise the dead? Is that the <laughs> is that the point? Yeah, there's got to, the trade off. That would be the trade off. <laughs> uh, it's it, it's test it's testimony to the fact that poor these poor youth the youth have always been marginalized and <laughs> people not paying attention to them. Um, you know that kind of thing. You you actually get I've heard youth pastor sermons on this uh that uh that's what was happening here is the marginalization of this young man and its indictment against the church for its failure to minister to the the youth who really don't care about long boring lectures on biblical theology (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, i I think uh, i'm I'm not going to endorse what you you what you said of swift's sermon but i think there's something something to that, that uh, if you look ahead in the chapter in Paul's uh, speech to the Ephesian elders, part of his message is be alert, verse 31. Mm. And you know, this is a, you know, stay awake is a, a regular exhortation from Jesus and from Paul. So mm-hmm. I think there may be something to the, to the idea that Eutychus is a, uh, is a negative example of somebody who doesn't stay alert I don't think the the kind of the kind of applications that you say Swift is making and others are making. I, I don't think that's the case. But there's a so it seems to be some play on that that theme that's uh, that comes up later in the chapter. Mm. Mm. I think it's interesting, Jeff. I, um, if this is Paul's last um, miracle, it seems interesting that Peter's last miracle is is also the raising of the dead. And so, um, uh, if that's correct, I need to 
check it out. But then there would be this interesting sort of directionality in the miracles in that they, they aren't just these kind of circus events or displays of power, but there, there is this sort of uh, direction of travel within them in that there is the uh, casting out of demons, the healing, and then climaxing with, I guess, the ultimate miracle, um, the, the resurrection and a, a pointer to the new life that they've come to bring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonder whether we're supposed to see some connection with a farewell discourse in an upper room and followed by a resurrection at the middle of the night and all these sorts of themes of staying awake with um, the events of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, did Eutychus die? <laughs> what, l- later on, you mean? <laughs> uh, well, seems to be in verse 9. Yeah, he was picked up dead. Uh, Paul says there is life in him, right? The li- his life is in him. He doesn't say, I can bring him back. Mm-hmm. He's picked up dead. Does that imply that he is, in fact, dead, or does it imply that whoever's picking up picking him up perceives him to be dead, but there's still a little bit of life in him that Paul's able to to uh, fan back into full life. Well, it's possible here that what's happening is not that Paul is saying that uh, he's not he hasn't died, but that now that Paul bent over him and took him in his arms, don't be alarmed, his life is in him. So that He's not saying that he had not died, but rather now that I have served him, he's alive. That's yeah. the way I take it. Yeah, good point. What are we supposed to make of the bending over him? Is it similar to what Elijah and Elisha do in placing their body over the dead body of the child? Um, yeah, I've got a different translation of verse 10. My Mine has fell upon him and embracing him. So that sounds a lot like what Elijah and Elisha did. You have bend, bending? Bent over him. Mm. ES, the ESV says bent over yep. him. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't check the Greek. Um, mm. I've imagined the same thing uh, that Jeff was describing where he's, uh, and Jeff, Jeff and Alistair, I think, both described him uh, placing himself on top of Eutychus, communicating his life to the dead body. Yeah. The, um, the effect of Paul's statement you know don't be alarmed his, his life is in him it seems to have that slightly you know rather than denying a, a miracle it seems to have that slightly deflationary um effect like jesus is you know don't, don't worry she's only asleep um it, it seems to have that same sense to it doesn't it mm-hmm. right right yeah you're in verse 10 the word is uh to fall upon or to attack epipipto uh it's a pretty strong verb apparently it's not it's not just about bending down. He he went he went after him, <laughs> um, kind of thing. Huh. Interesting. Before we move on from Eutychus, another um, phrase that uh, stood out to me is verse nine, where he sinks into a deep sleep. Uh, and I, again, I didn't look up the Greek to know exactly what's how that's phrased, but um, uh, I'm I'm put in mind of deep sleep events from the Old Testament. Adam's deep sleep that leads to the creation of Eve, Abraham's deep sleep at the time of the cutting of the covenant in, in Genesis 15. And uh, there are some other deep sleep episodes. I think Saul is in deep sleep when he's when uh, David sneaks into the camp and takes away his uh, spear and his, what does he take, a jug 
as uh, Jim Jordan has pointed out, deep sleep is not just sleep, but something already close to death. Uh, and um, I just wondered if if we could uh, tease out any links with those earlier deep sleep passages. So after he leaves, after Paul leaves Troas uh, with the with his group, they uh, go through the uh, from uh, to various places, verses thirteen through sixteen, and then end up in Miletus where he calls for the elders from the church in Ephesus to come and meet him. And he gives this fairly lengthy farewell speech. It's the, it's the only place where Paul has a, a, a goodbye scene where he, he ha- gives this uh, length of speech, which um, uh, Tannehill's um, book on the narrative unity of Luke and Acts lays out a, a pretty neat chiasm for the, for the speech. Paul begins by talking about serving the Lord and then, ends the speech by talking about working hard and uh, ministering to his own needs, not uh, not um, depending on the Ephesians. He mentions tears toward the beginning, and he mentions his tears toward the end. He used the word announcer, proclaim um, a couple of times, and then witness and or testify. He uses in verses 23 and again at the end of verse 24. Um and right in the center of that um, uh, is Paul's description of what's uh, going to come to him in Jerusalem. Verses 23 and 24 seem to be the chiastic center. He doesn't know what will happen except this Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life to be any account as dear to myself, that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. So the... the uh, the entire uh, speech focuses down on the his journey toward Jerusalem and the afflictions that he's going to suffer there. And if you have any particular thoughts on why it is that um, Paul wants to be at Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Well, certainly bring the narrative of um, the book of Acts to a neat um, pattern mm. there and back again story. Mm. Is he there to present the uh, oh, these disciples, these converts that he's bringing along as a kind of first fruits offering. Is there some symbolic import to that? Hmm. The collection of gifts for um, the Jerusalem disciples seems to be hmm. a very prominent part of Paul's mission. In so many of his letters, he references the fact that he's collecting um, for the Jerusalem Christians. And this is seen not just as... Um, some sort of relief offering as such. It's a symbolic offering of the Gentiles mm-hmm. to the Jews as a mark of their unity in, in the gospel. And perhaps he wants to bring it at that point um, to represent something of the, the offering of the church as this new loaf that's being formed. Hmm. I also think of the uh, beginning story of, uh, uh, of Pentecost in Acts 2 which is not just the gift of the Spirit, but it's a gathering of Jews from every nation under heaven, Jews and God-fearers from every nation under heaven. So Paul is, just as a kind of missionary tactic, he's going to put himself in a position where there's going to be thousands of extra people in Jerusalem during the feast. Uh, there could be, a, could be a missionary strategy to that. Hmm. Right. I, I, like, I like Jeff's suggestion, though, that it's, uh, maybe, maybe he's bringing the... the uh, monetary offering, but he's also bringing an offering of Gentiles. That's what, that was your point, right, Jeff? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that seems to be pretty prominent because that's one of the things that he's accused of. Um, <clears throat> even though he didn't intend to bring Gentiles into the temple, nevertheless, everybody knew that he had a contingent of uh, Gentile believers with him. Uh, and there's some, it seemed to be pretty important to Paul that he bring them to Jerusalem at this time. Yeah. So that's, that's an important part to remember the, the, uh, um, he's got this entourage that's described in 20 verse four, uh, some from Berea, from Thessalonia, Thessalonica, from Derby, uh, people from Asia. So uh, there's this contingent of, uh, are they Gentile God fears? Are they Gentiles who converted uh, and never had uh, any contact with Judaism? But uh, that's the, that's the group that's making its way toward Jerusalem. You have a kind of mini pilgrimage of the Gentiles moving toward Jerusalem, and he's going to end up in the temple. Uh, there's kind of a prophetic pattern that's, that he's uh, perhaps deliberately fulfilling. And Pentecost would be an appropriate time to do that because Pentecost, as Jeff indicated, is a, is a feast of first fruits, uh, the first fruits of the land, uh, agricultural first fruits, but also a sign of the first fruits of the Gentiles, the nations being brought to brought into God's house. Hmm. Well, yeah. speech seems to have a prominent concern to justify um, or to vindicate himself of any responsibility for um, his ministry that he has acquitted himself. Well, he has told them everything that he ought to have done. And he testifies that he is innocent. Um, of the blood of all, which seems to be a reference back to Ezekiel chapter um, 33, verse 8. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. And so he sees his ministry very much as this great burden of responsibility that has been laid upon him as a watch person. And he will pass on that responsibility to the Ephesian elders who are expected to have that same concern to um, fulfill their charge, the same sense of dread responsibility should they not do so. Uh, Ezekiel, I think, is the background. It also reminds me of um, uh, Samuel's farewell speech Yeah, in First Samuel. Um, and the thing that particularly uh, links it is his uh, insistence that he is free from any kind of greed. I haven't coveted silver or clothes or gold. Uh, I served with my own hands. Um, Samuel makes the point that he was not. Uh, he didn't. He didn't do any. Uh, he didn't use his his uh, his uh, position in Israel in order to enrich himself. So Paul's making a similar similar kind of point here. Yeah, I was reminded of Samuel's farewell speech too. I mean, there's also the sense that after he's gone, um, things aren't going to be good. I mean, in Samuel's case, Samuel's case, that's sort of on the Israelites' own um, heads because of their desire for Saul. But um, here, it's it's different, isn't it? It's just, um, yeah, the rise of false prophets and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, twenty. Go ahead, Rob. Go ahead. Verse 28 is probably one of the most remarkable Trinitarian verses in the whole of the Bible. 
pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Um, this seems to be a reference to each of the persons of the Trinity, but in a way that um, is surprising. Um, the, the reference to the Holy Spirit has made them overseers and the obtaining of the church with his own blood connects. Um, I mean, Christ is clearly in view there, but it relates very closely to God who has just been mentioned. Um, so it's, the church of the father, but it's also the church that has been obtained through the blood of God in the son. Yeah. I like that. And we might return to it, but I want to come back to this point you made, um, Alistair and both, and both Peter and James spoke to, and that is this, you know, I'm an innocent man kind of speech here. Um, and you, you spoke earlier about the strangeness of the modern mind. And I read this and I, I wonder what exactly is Paul including here? What, how much of the, does, does he actually mean he's never made any mistakes? That he's never, um, uh, never sinned? Never, it's really hard for a modern pastor. I See, I'm reading this and thinking, you know, when I finish my ministry after, you know, 45 years of ministry or whatever, when I finish, am I going to, say this am i going to be able to say something like this is this is this um something unique to the apostles is it exemplary for us uh, i think it's a, i mean obviously his life is exemplary but you know basically saying i'm moving on and if anything bad happens it's not because of me it's because of you maybe that's too blunt of a question <laughs> <laughs> But look, okay, let, me, let me back it up a little bit in terms of the strangeness of the modern, maybe American Christian pastor's mind is we're all about apologizing and asking for forgiveness and confessing our brokenness and our weakness and our inability to do anything all the time. I mean, that's kind of the, a big theme these days. And I'm, I'm not entirely opposed to it, but something like this seems like hubris. Mm -hmm. Seems like unrealistic hubris. Mm. Mm. I suppose my my gen general um, approach is to take these things as statements of the general tenor of people's lives, in the same way that I would take various psalms to be like that. So, very, particularly David can sort of talk about how he's continually been of a of a pure heart and has had clean hands and and, and so forth and. I take it just to mean that he, he's saying, you know, he, he has been loyal and faithful um, to the Lord, just as Paul hasn't shrunk away from declaring certain things if, if they were going to be hard to take or, or so forth. You know, David has been um, uh, faithful, not deliberately set out to deceive or, or, or do things like that. Um, but I, I totally take your point at the same time. There's something very striking about it. That's helpful, connection with the Psalms, yeah. But, but I think that means that this, is a, this is, can be a, a model of, I mean, we take the Psalms and we sing the Psalms, so they they're become a model of prayer and of Christian rhetoric, and they're, they're legitimate things for Christians to say to God. And I think we can apply the same thing to this 
uh, to this speech. I, I don't. I don't think yet. It, it would probably be an overstatement to say that Paul is claiming he never, never ever made a mistake, uh, and that there isn't the smallest detail of anything mm. that he failed to teach them. But I think yeah, uh, James's suggestion that this is about the general tenor of his ministry that he taught them everything they needed to know. He didn't shrink back. And he leaves them as a model for ministry. I think that's that's an appropriate model for Christian minister, and without qualms of conscience, be able to declare that. So that that's your that's your goal, Jeff, when you retire, <laughs> yeah. uh, that you be able to just repeat this verbatim. That's right. And his expression of his faithfulness in his ministry um, includes teaching them every single part of the um, the message of God also teaching them in all these different contexts. He's taught them in public and from house to house. He's taught every single group of person, he, persons. He's taught both um, Jews and Greeks. And he's taught them to the end that they fully enter into this reality. So it seems to involve not just putting it all out there in some general context, but this almost pursuit of them um, in the, with the truth that in no place will they escape this. Um, in no particular will they be excused from knowledge of it. Um, every single person should be made aware and every single person will be, um, or he'll be acquitted of his responsibility for every single person. They bear the responsibility. They've heard the message and now it is on them to respond. And in doing this and in presenting his defense at this particular juncture, he's also giving the elders and overseers, the pattern that they must follow because they have to do exactly the same thing, particularly in a context where there will be these false teachers arising and it will be a lot more difficult than it might have been at this initial stage where you have new converts and there aren't the same sort of discontents arising within the church as there would be later on. Yeah, mm. and I think that, that setting the model for the, for the elders for the future is an important dimension of what Paul's talking about, which is, uh, is something we, we can forget about Paul's ministry. And it doesn't apply in every place because he doesn't stay the same length of time in every place. But at least mm -hmm. in Ephesus, he doesn't just go plant a church and move on. He goes, plants a church, stays for a while, lives out the, uh, the kind of life that a leader of the church should live. So they've had several years of Paul modeling the life of a, of a minister in the church. And then he can move on. They can look back to the to uh, Paul's example, uh, exhort themselves by Paul's example, be convicted by Paul's example and by his words. Uh, they're kind of spurred on to uh, to live up to Paul's to the ministry that Paul gave them. But that that uh, that kind of local pastoral dimension of Paul's ministry is something we we can we shouldn't neglect as an aspect of his, uh, of his apostleship. I'm glad you've drawn attention to that, Jeff, though, because that seems to be very uh, prominent. And so it's stated um, in verse 20, this idea of not um, shrinking back. And, and then it's um, repeated again in verse 27. I did not shrink back from declaring uh, to the whole council of God. And it just strikes me as important, you know, as, as a pastor, you are going to want to be uh, blameless in, in that sense, aren't you? If, if things go wrong within your, your church, you are going to want it to be not because you've skipped over various issues in Scripture, but f for some other reason. And it just strikes me that often um, 
it is vice versa. Sadly, you know, often there is a temptation people skip over certain things in scripture, and that will always have um, an effect. M- most of us probably know people who've been so given unrealistic expectations when the Christian life has been explained to them, and, and they will later, when things mm. get tough, uh, fall away, or, or perhaps mm. you know, a pastor has skipped over some really tough warning passages and, and thought, well, you know, I don't want to sort of shake people's confidence or I, I don't want to give the impression that we're kind of saved by works or anything and, and have skipped over various things. And it seems to me that kind of Paul's confidence of the fact that he's free from blame isn't the fact that he's been super energetic and made sure he's always kept himself busy and so forth, but that he hasn't skipped over particular aspects of, of the counsel of God that he has just preached the, the whole thing. Mm. And the danger of shrinking back from presenting certain aspects of God's truth, um, I think we can derive from this passage a clear sense of what it means to be a shepherd of the flock of God, that the threat that you often find is your own desire to oblige people, um, to not be confrontational, to not stir things up within the congregation by tackling some um, particular sin that is afflicting people but which you can tolerate it's not going to cause too much problems you don't think and so you can just live with it although you know that it is not healthy and in many ways you might want to avoid certain of the more controversial issues issues for instance in the current context on sexuality and um, issues um, that might challenge people's lifestyle whatever it is that might hit at that point that might get a a really negative response. Those are the things that you shrink back from. It's also a context where you're having a lot of people who will be rising up as opponents and you need to withstand them. And we often have this idea of pastoral ministry as just someone who has theological training and can deliver a, a decent sermon and can play a sort of therapeutic role in pastoral guidance. But the ministry that Paul is thinking about here really requires a sort of manfulness um, to it. I think it's one of the reasons why scripture does stress um, manly virtues in ministry, that there is something about defense and guardianship um, that is integral to the task of ministry that can often be neglected in current contexts. That's a great point. Uh, There's a a stress on the need for courage in pastoral ministry, not at all as as a contrary point, but Paul also emphasizes twice, verses 19 and 31. He emphasizes not shrinking back twice, but he also says twice that he served among them with tears, admonishes them with tears. So there's a, an emotional intimacy and involvement and a passion to Paul's ministry. The courage and the tears are not in any way incompatible with each other, but I think both of those uh, points to a, uh, a kind of courage that's not a courage for the sake of uh, a displaying manliness it's not courage for the sake of uh, lording it over the congregation. The combination of courage and tears means that he's doing all that he needs to do, not shrinking back at all, because he wants to serve the people and he wants to protect the flock from, from wolves and from uh, others within the church who would create, create difficulties. Those two dimensions of ministry, I think, are crucial to put together. You need to have both of those dimensions in order to serve faithfully. 
Well, now we're just going too far here, way too far. Now, now, <laughs> now I've got to cry in every sermon. Is that what you're telling me? That's what I said. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, if you read this, if you read this um, speech, Paul is saying that without this kind of healthy masculine leadership, the church is in trouble. Uh, and if you think about it, the church seems to be here uh, very fragile, vulnerable, kind of hovering between life and death. There's this knife edge. It almost appears like it doesn't require much to bring it down. And the answer to that for Paul is these men, these elders, these older masculine leaders. He doesn't leave them with a constitution. We've mentioned this before, but he doesn't leave them with a constitution or bylaws or a doctrinal statement. Now, I'm sure there is some of that, but that's not emphasized here. Um, things that has to be subscribed to or, or uh, assented to. I'm sure there's, there's obviously that. But what they need is shepherds, overseers, in order to survive. And if, and if these men aren't going to behave in a faithful way, aren't going to shepherd and serve in a way that exemplifies or, or follows the example of Paul, then the church is doomed. The church is over. You mentioned earlier, Peter, the deep um, emotional involvement that Paul has, um, the tears that he's shedding for them. And that's one thing that comes through in so many of his letters. He has a profound affection and concern. He's praying constantly for the churches that he's founded and been involved with. And every single part of his letters are filled with this um, intense concern that they grow, that they experience spiritual health, that this is not, um, that the troubles that they experience are not things that lead to their debilitation, but rather that they grow beyond them. And that sort of relationship with a congregation, I think, is truly exemplary. It's the way he describes, I mean, we talked about some of the masculine dimensions here, but Paul will often describe himself also as a mother figure, one that is playing this very nurturing role. And um, he's laboring in birth again for the Galatians, or in the case of the Thessalonians, that he's like a nursing mother. Um, and this giving them the word, growing them to the point where they can stand on their own two feet and they can um, grow themselves as they study the word. These are immensely concerning for him. And also this recognition that the pastor and his flock are so intimately bound up. You can't separate them. The pastor bears the flock in his heart. And for that reason, the flock can trust him because they know that he wishes nothing but their good. And all the hard words that he might give them are ultimately delivered from this place of profound affection and concern. And there, I think we also see the way his ministry is supported by his own hands. He's very concerned not to lay a burden upon them, as in the case of the Corinthians, so that it becomes clear that he's not doing this from mercenary, for mercenary reasons. He's concerned for their well-being, for their souls, and if he's acquitted of their lives, that's the important thing. And he will do anything within his power to ensure that they're not confused about what he's about. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it looks like uh, from Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, 
that the uh, wolves that got into the flock and the men that raised within the church who speak perverse things have had their effect on the Ephesian church. And uh, Jesus begins by commending them, but then in Revelation 2.4 says, uh, charges them with having left their first love, uh, urges them to remember where they've, where they started from where they had fallen and repent or else he's going to come and remove their lampstand. So um, there's a, there's a kind of um, further story in the new Testament concerning Ephesus that bears out what Paul predicts here about the dangers that the Ephesian church is going to face. And uh, at least at the time that Jesus is dictating that message to John the Ephesian church is not living up to Paul's exhortation here. They're not dealing with the, or they're, if they're dealing with the, with the, uh, may, maybe it's a, maybe it's a matter of dealing with the, the wolves, but they're not continuing in the, the love that Paul had uh, modeled to them uh, in his ministry. Hmm. The root of Paul's example to get back to Alistair's comment on verse 28. Uh, this seems to be at the heart of uh, Paul's address is, remarkable statement here. Um, Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul's behavior is grounded in God's behavior. God's behavior is seen in Jesus, and then in Paul, and then in these overseers, and hopefully in the church as a whole, which will then be, you know, a nursery for the kingdom, for the world. But Paul is modeling God's behavior, embodying God's work. And in his being servant, being being humble, in his giving, and his doing what is profitable for others. This is how God has revealed himself in Christ as the chief servant, uh, as our shepherd. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.